Welcome to the Donmar on Design podcast series. I'm Kate Tiernan, and this is our opportunity to talk in depth with some of the UK's leading theatre designers. Donmar on Design is a festival celebrating the power of design in theatre and the designers who make it happen. Um, and what does Christmas look like for you? Loads and loads of lights. And dec- I love Christmas decorations, like an awful lot. It's, in a way, I would be as happy doing, like being a Christmas decoration designer as I would being a theatre designer, which <laughs> maybe I should do that. Like, I love it. I love Christmas films. Um, <laughs> What's your favourite Christmas movie? Uh, it's Home, Home Alone. Home Alone. Home Alone yes. is the one. There's so many great, but Home Alone just sticks out. Um, and has hilariously been like inspiration for so many things I've done work-wise as well. What's because, your favourite moment in Home Alone? Um, so I really love the the montage of him with all of the cut-out people where he's trying to make it look like the whole room is dancing. Yeah. And it's just him with strings tied to his feet. Like, that really sticks out. But I also have always been like totally obsessed with the boiler monster and like just how palpably frightening that is. Yeah. Um, I really love Home Alone too as well, and just a moment that he realises he's gone to New York. <laughs> like, that's like pure childhood joy of, like, I've done it again, like, and I'm in New York, this is freedom. <laughs> like, what? Well, I love Home Alone. <laughs> and, and Christmas movies when you were younger, um, what did that, was that a big family affair? Uh, yeah, it was. We, like, we would absolutely sit around. I have memories of sitting in my dad's lap watching Home Alone, which is really sweet, and like cuddled up. And even like oh, as a sort of older teenager, we would always still sit down to watch that one film, like maybe on Christmas Day, but at the very least, sort of on the build-up. But I think my, my dad's such a Grinch, so he would absolutely like claim to not be enjoying it. But I think he can quote it just as well as I can, so yeah. And are you, are you a family full of tradition at Christmas? Well, we are, but we're quite. It's quite a small family because only my so my dad, my mum, my sister, and my grandma. So I think that always means it's it's like a slightly limited kind of tradition. And my uncle should add, um, but uh, yeah, we always always at either my grandma's house as a child, which was always brilliant, or our house, and you know, all the classics: mince pies in the morning, sausage rolls. Mum always makes sausage rolls, which is great. Yeah, I love it. I love Christmas. I love Christmas. That's a good time. And what would your, um, if you had gone down the route of Christmas um, decoration designer, what would we be seeing? I, so the really sort of classic, sort of cool, arty version of me wants to be like, oh, laser cut wooden snowflakes or something. But really way more interested in like what you can do with tinsel. So, do you know, there's... <laughs> one of the main distributors of tinsel in the world is in Wales um, and it's like a, a tinsel factory and I really want to go because that just sounds like heaven and there, there's a there's a documentary it's not a documentary is it can you call it a documentary if it's about tinsel I think tinsel? we can call it a tinsel, tin, tinsel, <laughs> the tinsel documentary. documentary but they they show like all of the, the gold foil and the way it gets cut by the machines, and I, I would love to go into tinsel manufacturing, but oh like a gosh. big scale tinsel, you know, yes. like giant tinsel. I'm from Wales, and I'm going back to Wales at Christmas, so I might have to hunt out the tinsel yeah. factory and um, send you a little photo. You've got to, got to do it. I, funnily enough, this is just reminding me. My tutor from at Bristol Vit, where I studied, Angela, her, I think she said her mother 
it wasn't a tinsel factory, but it was like a Christmas tree decoration factory. Her mother worked there and would steal <laughs> like the foils and stuff so that Angela could then like make models because it, was it wasn't like she could just pop down to a craft shop where she lived and grab like some nice mirror card from London Graphic Centre. So her, her mum's like t- tinsel job sort of fueled that's her amazing. appetite for design. So maybe that's leaked into me. Did you, so you said your dad was an architect. Yeah. So did you, um, did you get into model making and crafting when you, were, when you were younger? So I've always been into crafting. Funnily enough, my dad didn't make models or not. I never have any memory of him making models and he's never, like, he's really engaged in what I'm doing now, but it's, it's something that he, it just never came into his practice. I feel like he was quite early on working in, in CAD, but we were all always, always making things anyway. It was just like a very, he was, like, his, I think his way of communicating with children is probably by being like, look, we can make a mask out of a plate. And, like, it's much easier to do that than it is to actually have a conversation with them. So I think that was part of our sort of upbringing was, was, was just making things and not necessarily very well. Like, there was always a crudeness and a quickness to the way we would do it. But I mean, one of the most amazing things, he made a puppet theatre for us when we were like very very little so I, that has just always been in my house as a child I don't really remember the day it was made I just remember that he like cut out from a bit of eight by four plywood and painted this like Vi's family puppet theatre wow. which is amazing so it's, it's almost like he was like be a theatre designer but he wasn't because when I when I be- sort of decided to go down that route he, I think, had a moment of being like, I didn't even know this was a job. And I didn't either, if I'm absolutely honest. It came so kind of late compared to other people for me that when a tutor at my university was like, oh, you know, this is a thing that you can do for a living. It's like, what? This is great. And I think my dad might have had a bit of a moment being like, oh, I could have been a theatre designer. Mm. <laughs> Damn it. But architecture's good too, you know. It is good, it is good. <laughs> and it sounds like you, the house that you grew up in was pretty colourful and creative um, because the first two objects we've got on the table which uh, speak about your kind of early childhood Mm. and what were the sort of things that inspired you at the time or um, opened a key to that creativity can you talk us through those a little bit so one of them is um, a photograph of a painting really colourful painting by your grandmother yeah my grandmother Errol Vise um, and where did this painting sit in your house? So this, I think, at that point we had a, like a whole room that I, I remember just just being paintings, and I think this one sat right in the middle. It now sits in my sister's flat. Lucky girl, <laughs> I want to get it off of her one day. Uh, but there were there were various paintings of my grandma's all over the place, and it was always she's such an abstract sort of colourful painter. Um, but they'd always hark back to the New Forest and the sort of Romanian traveller community that she lived with there. So there's like always a lot of colour, a lot of mystery in them. I think this one here almost feels the most literal, which it isn't at all, but it's got lines that like clearly denote shapes, which is quite unusual for her, but a lot of the time it feels like stark, brilliant colours. Or there's, funnily, there's quite a weird story about one of her paintings actually, which is, I think it's called The Witches, and it's a sort of foresty scene um, with three figures in it and no one will have it in the house because everyone is convinced that it's haunted and like it sounds like my family is so like airy fairy they're not at all but then then as soon as this painting comes out and someone's like oh we need to find a new home for it everyone's like no I can't I can't Um, because what I think the story goes 
that it was in an exhibition in the New Forest back in the day. And they locked up, I think, what was a town hall, and there were sort of probably 20 paintings there. The next day they come in and all the paintings have been turned around, apart from the witches. That's still, yeah. Someone was playing a trick on them. Says the logical half of my brain. But I will not... Are you quite superstitious? I, I think I am, like, against all best judgment. I really, I sort of am like, I'm not at all, but then I won't walk under a ladder. So okay. clearly I am, and I won't have that painting in my house. And this painting, talk us through, what does it represent to you? So for me, it, re- it really reminds me of, I guess, all, like these abstract images that she paints, I just would fall into them as a child. Like, you could stare at them for hours, and there's so much movement in it. And I think it almost felt like a kind of, dizzying creativity like oozing out of it that has not like it's really sat with me all through my adult life so far of, of just um like I think it's almost like it was permission to be a bit mad and a bit creative and, and like you can create real beauty in, in unknown and uncertainty and yeah but that's what it represents and I think something that I now look at it and as I've gotten a bit older have started to think that her use of colour is so brilliant and that's something that I always find slightly harder in my practice. I don't, I'm not, not a super colourful designer or if I am, it's like one big burst of colour but she's so playful with, with colour and I'm like, I've got to find that in me because I believe it's there. But you do love glitter and shiny things as I, you were saying earlier. Yeah, I really love glitter and shiny things. Um, if I can get a slash curtain into anything, <laughs> I will. <laughs> and um, talking about performances... Um, this next picture that you've got, which is from the same kind of period of time, I'm guessing. How old? Yeah. Are you, how old are you in this? Photo? I think I'm twelve. I think, yeah, twelve or thirteen. And what's going on? I'm backstage, uh, hand on, uh, arm on the shoulder of my mate at a an at local production of Oliver the Musical. Um, we are both in full orphan gear. I am playing the Artful Dodger. Um, <laughs> Which is great, like what a forward-thinking amateur dramatic company to yeah. have such gender-blind casting. Um, I, it was like such an amazing time to, I think being I, at the end of your childhood is I think how old I was, definitely. I still felt like a kid, was probably about to become an irritating adolescent. Um, and just being surrounded by other kids your age in a situation where you were encouraged to be naughty because that's what that that show is about you are you are the orphans uh, you're like in Fagan's gang um but I think this feels so important to me I spent a lot of my childhood and teenage years acting at various levels um because I think I found it because it was like you could hide into different worlds it didn't have to be you so much you could you know you had permission again to just be a bit mad be, be naughty be cheeky um, and if you could like immerse yourself in that, then that was brilliant. And then as I got older, it was also the, like, where you form your closest friendships and stuff. Started to be the theatre, and yeah. So that feels like a kind of really happy time in my life. I was terrible though. I mean, I feel so bad for anyone that had to sit through my performances. <laughs> Did your family used to come and watch you? Absolutely, yeah. Front row. Probably and you said every your, sis- night. your sister's now an actress. Yeah, yeah. So she trained um, at Mountview. Uh, she does musical theatre. She's so brilliant. Um, so she saw it through I stumbled and I think she's sort of the reason in a way I remember being at um, a play scheme in in the summer holidays and there was an option to go and do a 
drama class and this is when I was really really little I must have been like four or five and I sort of plodded behind her because she was like yeah absolutely I'm gonna go and do drama and I didn't want to get left alone so I would I would just sort of quietly follow her wherever she went like Mary's little lamb um and ended up (laughs) in a drama class and then from then on you sort of get the bug you get a bit addicted to it and then it wasn't until much later that I sort of stopped being interested in performing so much and suddenly started to sort of be aware that you could make theatre which felt more interesting to me and have you always been interested in kind of costume and dressing up and yeah I I have a a really embarrassing memory of um (laughs) based on that because it really has been since I can remember uh we were studying the Greek gods in primary school and the teacher had organized a day that we'd have like a little picnic as the Greek gods, as though we were on Table Mountain or whatever it is that they all live. Um, but I thought, that's not right. It's not Table Mountain. Oh, well. Um, and I wanted to be Cupid, so I had gone home and got a pillow and cut it up into the toga and then drawn all over it, like really adorned it, spent ages. And then I got to school and put the bag down and it was just like a, I don't know, like a Tesco bag. And then I couldn't find it when it came to the moment that we were supposed to be dressing up. And so I was like totally devastated. And I, I, I remember being like, you don't understand. I can't just wear any toga. This wasn't any toga. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then we found it two days later and the teacher let me wear it in class <laughs> for the whole afternoon. What was the class? Uh, I, it would have just been general studies of I don't know, whatever you learn in year three. <laughs> Probably maths. <laughs> Or English, and there's me like dressed up as Cupid, like Aww. still. I was like, I have, I have to wear it. It's got to happen. And then after you were saying after the um, kind of moving on from theatre and acting, you got quite into writing. I, I tried, yeah. I, I think that's that was the first thing that kind of distracted me from acting was was suddenly I think you start to discover like playwrights I think like Tom Stoppard weirdly Mm. is the one that rings a bell and I'd always been like quite into Shakespeare as a child because I was weird um and I I think I I had a tendency at that age to just wake up and decide like I'm gonna do this now and I'm gonna be really good at it and I wasn't at all I like could not get words down onto paper but I still somehow managed to like come up with sort of really dreadful texts but I think that was what led me sort of into deciding to go to university to study theatre rather than say like become an actor was because I suddenly was like I guess knocking on the door of what it is to make theatre rather than Mm. to be in it um so I think that there's there's a sort of weird pathway I mean I'm so in awe of writers because I just can't do it at all but I love to create worlds and to build pictures and I, I, what I'd like sort of think of my own work as is like a visual dramaturgy like it's sort of telling its own story it's moving through in a quite yeah storytelling way um, and so yeah that interest in writing I think led me to becoming mm. a designer and what were some of the things that you saw other than Home Alone obviously mm. um, either films or theatre that, that really influenced so I remember going on a school trip to Knights of the Circus, which is uh, Emma Rice directed a knee-high show. It was at the Lyric Hammersmith. Um, and I, I must have been 16 when I saw that. And I remember watching that and just being bowled over by 
how visual it was, how uh, how irreverent they were. Like it, it's such a sad kind of bleak world, but within that there was still naughtiness, which I thought was so brilliant and is so true of Emma's work. I think that she can find real heart and real sadness and be totally irre- irreverent alongside it. And I didn't even I didn't know who Nihai were at that point because why would you if you're 16 not not from that world. Uh, but suddenly it was like, oh, you, like you can you can make this. This is a thing. This isn't made by auditioning for the musical that's being put on in your local theatre. <laughs> this is there, there's something else going on here. Like you can read about their time at the barn. So then I started to read about Nehi and the Nehi, the the chalice of Nehi barns out in Cornwall, and the, the, the time they spent devising. And that word devising felt really exciting to me. Um, so that felt like a big shift but one that was sort of, just, like, it was like cogs just turning, and then over the next couple of years, then I went to Royal Holloway to study theatre, um, where, as well as being a very academic course, I think that you're really focusing on, on, on theatre making as well. So we worked with a practitioner called David Williams, who was so brilliant in, in sort of pushing us to devise and be kind of subversive and playful and I think with him <laughs> we ended up making a giant bear puppet yeah god I wish I had a photo of that yeah a giant bear puppet that did some weird tango with a guy wearing a fez it was probably really offensive in some way but if <laughs> like we were just nonsensical uh, creative mad people making theatre and then what was it like to go on and work with Nehi when you obviously when you finished totally nuts and like the coolest thing that's ever happened to me <laughs> Um, so what happened there I said to my tutor when I was about to do our exhibition she was like who would you love to invite and I was like knee high knee high knee high knee high Uh, and their executive producer came along and I was in a very chatty mood so it worked out really well for me that I just I I could talk about my work in a way that I hadn't been able to it was was all like everything kind of fell into place that day Um, and I think what they saw is a very energetic young woman that would be willing to do what was a kind of impossible project that they had had land on their mm. table, which was a production of Noah's Flood, so Noah's Ark, um, which is a Benjamin Britten opera. Um, and Charles Hazelwood, um, who's, a com- who's a conductor and composer and works with them a lot, uh, wanted to involve local schools from the Glastonbury area to create a new production of it. Specifically, that would mean 500 school children were going to be the animals. Uh, and so I got brought in as this sort of wide-eyed, excited designer to make that happen on almost no money uh, with the associate director of Lehigh, Simon Harvey. Uh, and it was, it was kind of like it was an impossible task, but we had a great time. And I think that was the beginning of a relationship that then led to me doing a sort of a more kind of traditional knee-high show doing fuck with Simon which is about a duck that comes to live with these two sort of toxic men that cannot communicate feelings and then this this female duck comes in and is just as bad as they are in a way but kind of brings the family closer ah it was so brilliant and so that meant a summer I think two or three years ago in in the barns where you, you cook and eat together and you all stay sort of in the local area and it's just something really pure about the way you make work there. It just feels like um, there's space to be creative and there's space to fail, I think, and make mistakes within it. Like the, the, the roughness of the 
I don't know, I guess like being in Cornwall, like the, the way that we're living means that no one is trying to be like a precious theatre maker. Instead, it's it's kind of trying to be as open with each other as possible and make as many mistakes as possible. So yeah. That what, sounds great. Yeah, it was crazy. And like, yeah, I can't, sometimes can't believe that I got to do that in a, in a way. It's like, yeah. That's one of the fun things about this job though, is you sort of find yourself suddenly meeting all of these amazing people that you sort of read about or heard about and suddenly you're like sitting across from a table mm. and like, wow, your actual brain is in the same room as mine. How cool. <laughs> and then ended up sort of being at the Globe at the same time as Emma Rice, who I've never actually worked with, but again, just like watching her work in that situation was just amazing. And where are you working at the moment? Do you have a studio or do you work from home? Uh, I have, I'm a bit naughty. So I have a studio that I don't go to ever. I haven't been for six months. Where is it? It's in, on the Old Kent Road, and I share it with how many other theatre designers? There's four theatre designers. There's also a handbag maker, um, a product designer, and a graphic designer. So it's quite a big space, and it's beautiful. It's got, like, a glass ceiling. Uh, it's like an old factory of some sort. I don't know what it was to begin with. Um, but it's it's freezing cold. <laughs> I was going to say, what's the reason for Yeah, so that the reason is, is the coldness, but also I think I feel like I flip between being someone that really enjoys sort of communal working to being someone that really needs the kind of quiet and time mm. in the studio on my own, and I'm very blessed that the current flat I'm in has a second bedroom. Joyful. So, yeah, I'm working in there. Uh, at the moment and I've got to I, I, this is it's like crunch time I really need to decide whether I'm going to keep paying for a studio that I don't use yeah. it's so tricky in London because to get one for the price that we've got it is insane so if you say goodbye to that you'll never get it again it will never be there and what's on your desk at the moment in your in your spare room studio so a couple of things at the moment so tomorrow uh, I am presenting the final model for Cougar which is a new play at the Orange Tree uh, and that's that's been a massive journey that play, but it's it's brilliant. It's it, it sort of feels like it's about about everything. It is about the the times that we live in. It's all set in a hotel room, um, but then it also feels like climate change kind of crunches the soul of it by the end of it. And yeah, it's 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 sort of for me, it's su- it's suitably like messing about with the form, like it's sort of not worried about being one thing or another there's a kind of chaos to it which I'm fascinated by so that's hopefully we've done a good job of the design I hope we've lived up to it <laughs> um, and that's directed by Chelsea Walker who's um, quite a long term collaborator of mine uh, and then I'm starting the process on a new production of The Audience um, which is to play about the Queen and all her meetings with the Prime Ministers which when I was first sent the script I was like there's just no way I'm going to like this this isn't up my street at all and God, I love that queen. Like, she's amazing. Like, it, it really has a really powerful... I mean, I don't know if you've watched The Crown. Yeah. It's like, I think that it does the same thing. It's by the same people where you just see this this woman in this extraordinary circumstance. And Sam Hodges, who's directing and is the artistic director of The Nuffield, wants to... The reason he wants to do this again is he feels like there's a more contemporary production in it. Like, there's a very successful commercial West End version that's happened and everyone was you know everyone loved and it had Helen Mirren and brilliant mm. and let so let's try and do the kind of opposite version of that let's get a young name in and let's be I mean the word European is sort of floated around really badly a lot of the time so I don't want to say it <laughs> but I have 
Uh, but yeah, so a more contemporary version. Uh, so those two are kind of bubbling around at the moment. Uh, and then some samples. I'm doing a new version of Hang by Debbie Tucker Green, who has also always been a massive inspiration of a playwright to me. Um, so I can't can't believe I'm working on that. I feel really excited. Uh, and we've already sent the model in. So this is the process now where the workshop has it. They're sending versions of materials through. And that's I find that process the hardest because it feels like you're 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 making really final decisions. And this particular set is not painterly at all. It's very you know it's real materials, which is something I'm really interested in. But also means that when you're deciding, that's kind of it. There's not like a you can't have a paint call and make that material work for you without ruining the kind of essence of it. Yeah. So. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and the next object that we've got on the table is from a is from a. Um, one of your set pieces yes um and ties in with so many things that we've just talked about <laughs> including chaos um yeah and glitter um yes and christmas decorations and christmas decorations so t- tell us tell us a bit about this so what this is what it actually is is a christmas bauble that i have i think painted silver clearly i couldn't be bothered to actually go and get a silver one um to turn it into a disco ball wrecking ball that sat in the centre of my design for No One Will Tell Me How To Start A Revolution, a brilliant play by Luke Barnes. Um, It is as kitsch as it sounds, so we wanted to create... The the play is about three sisters uh, who sort of go through this... I think their dad basically sells their childhood home so that they can go to a better school and they're, like, nearer, in a different area. So it's about like the attempt at social mobility. Um, so when you come in, it's like a kind of super femme paradise where there's rainbows. I mean, they, they let me loose on this one in a way that's probably not acceptable. And it was really, really fun. Um, so I had a rainbow slash curtain. Um, it had like millennial pink Monopoly houses that they got all their props out of. Um, and so it felt like a bit of a paradise. And then by the... And there would be like really kind of powerful moments of them swinging the wrecking ball and screaming for dear life of joy and then by the end everything has started to feel a little bit drab and empty and there's a sort of really sad moment where one of the characters is swinging on the wrecking ball and almost just lets it stop swinging while she's on it and that yeah this so this sat at the center of that and at what point did that come in the design process for you so this I think the reason I've chosen this one today is because I didn't didn't come immediately. It wasn't like a oh I've read the script and this is absolutely how how I should do it. But the the kind of world of it felt very immediate to me, even though it's this Luke doesn't I'd like prescribe in that way. He's a really kind of uh, collaborative writer. And uh, but when I read it, it felt like it's like three girls. They feel so close to me, and I feel like I can embrace it. So what is my <laughs> paradise? <laughs> Turns out it's a Miley Cyrus wrecking ball (laughs) that's also a disco ball. Um, And so it came, like, I think it probably was about half an hour before meeting the director, Anna Ledwich, for probably our second meeting. And I was like, just do it, because I think it was in my head. And I kept being like, no, 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 that's ridiculous. You can't can't have a wrecking ball. So Because also Miley Cyrus is such a controversial character, I think, and therefore... Are you undermining the women by putting that on stage? Mm. But it didn't feel that. It felt it felt like owning your femininity and owning your sort of childishness all at once. So yeah, that was how that came about. And what um, 
advice would you give to young designers that maybe have that thought of there's a reoccurring idea or thought that you haven't quite given yourself <laughs> the permission to vocalize or to mm. you know bring into bring into the room what what would you say um it's it's i think everyone has that battle um I want to say always just do it and I do think like there's the, the best collaborations that you'll have is where you can say those ideas that might be completely mad and there'll be space for them and you might end up going away from them. I think it's like we we're, we feel really precious about our ideas and of course we do because they come like you're kind of pouring your soul out onto paper a lot of the time. Um, but don't don't worry if they get thrown aside. Don't worry if it doesn't end up being the right, the right thing. Don't worry if it was wrong. Like feel empowered to fail I think like like knee high is what I was saying there like have like give yourself that permission um but it's not always this is not always the case it's so hard to overcome that nervousness but this this felt like a time where I really did allow myself to go there and you just I think you feel a lot happier by the end of those shows um and I think it also puts you in a you're sort of challenging yourself as a as an artist at that point as well to to really listen to your own instincts and I think at the moment that's what I'm really trying to do in my own work all the time it's like really trust those instincts and be confident enough to vocalize them like that's why you're in the room at that point mm. and what does your creative process look like when you begin a project um it really depends I, I feel like I'm quite a, an all-over-the-place designer um that like I feel like if you look through my sketchbook it looks like five different people are working <laughs> in it which is, says an awful lot about me um but so if it's a really cerebral quiet play I might just be in text and taking notes and I, I mean I do a lot of talking I really feel very close to the directors and writers I work with um but then I also you'll have situations where I'm just throwing sort of weird shapes into model boxes and it I think I really my process changes per play almost it gets edited by that what I find sort of the most useful now though the more I've I've worked is 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 being in the room with people like it's not uh it's not alone it doesn't have to be a lonely process like the time that you can spend with your director or even like I've done a show recently uh, called Incantata that was directed by Sam Yates, based on a poem by Paul Muldoon, starring Tan- Stanley Townsend, a uh, brilliant actor for Galway Arts Festival. And it all came about really last minute, so we didn't have a normal process. And it also wasn't a script, it was a poem, so it was totally devised. And that really was Stanley, me and Sam and everyone else involved just working in the room together mm. and out of it has come one of my for me one of the most successful designs I've ever worked on and, and like such a pure sort of live experience for the audience something really hypnotic came out of it um so I'm sort of trying to remember that as part of my process now is is find time to get in a room don't get in the model get get in one-to-one not one to 25 <laughs> my tagline <laughs> and where, where do you go to get inspired um so i don't i don't have anywhere any one specific place but when i'm really really stuck if i'm especially if it's like a studio day or certainly a working from home day i go for walks i go for lovely long walks um i live near crystal palace park which has so do, I. do you so you know the dinosaurs <laughs> i know the dinosaurs, met the dinosaurs. very well yeah so and the gorilla great. yeah yeah just all and of the huge those pylon which people think is 
Eiffel Tower. Yeah. yeah. I like to point at it and say, oh, it's a shard, occasionally. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a really annoying person. <laughs> uh, but that that park to me is like there's so much nonsense in there yeah and the like, py- pyramid roof the pyramid roof is beautiful that the sports center i think is a stunning building one of my best friends lives near there as well and she's always like what do you mean stunning it's concrete it's the ugliest thing i've ever seen and i'm like look it's at it beautiful it's so beautiful like this that swimming pool there as well i i often yeah. go to swim if i'm yes. mentally blocked i find that a really kind of the sort of simplicity of just doing lengths, but also in like an architecturally stunning space. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yes, yeah, so I'm really privileged to get to be in that area. And it's like just looking at the dinosaurs, I think. I find the dinosaurs really inspiring. Um, there's just something about... Because I feel like the Victorians couldn't have had... It's, it's sort of like... A, it's guesswork, isn't it? Those dinosaurs are sort yeah. of based on a best-guess situation. And in the maze, like, yeah. Yeah, in the maze. And the rusty laptop. Have you, have you seen that? No, where's the rusty laptop? There's like a, a lake. I can't remember how you get there. Maybe I've dreamt Near the dinosaurs. It's not. It's it's near the... It's, it's nearer the maze, actually. And there's a... Me, it's like a metal... I think it was supposed to be in the 70s. It was built to be a music venue. <sighs> I do know what you mean. Yeah. I've never thought of it as a laptop, but I know exactly what you mean. I don't it does know why. Like yeah, the rusty yeah, the rusty stage. Yeah, and it's so beautiful. It's, like, yeah, what it's an stunning. amazing thing. And I, I guess that the land around it probably isn't strong enough, which is why they didn't end up using it how it was planned. I feel like Crystal Palace is like filled with that, isn't it? It's like it was meant to be the home of the Crystal Palace, but it burnt down. Um, the, the rusty laptop was meant to be a brilliant music stage, but it's people like an kept archaeologists' dreams. Yeah, it is. There's there's forgotten dreams. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it is just like a, a wonderland to walk around that park, and that is what I do. And I I get really stuck. I'll go there, or I'll ring a director and annoy them with questions. But <laughs> and talking about wonderlands. Um, or wonder places. The third object that we've got on the table um, is of a place that was really significant to you in your youth. Yes. Um, and well, we've got kind of two objects, but let's start with the let's start with the photograph, which is a photograph of three, four of your friends um, on a roof. Well, in... actually, I'm there, but I look oh, very yes, different. Yeah, but um, it's yeah, three of my friends. And you're sat on a reef in a terraced house. Where, where's this? So this is in Egham, sunny Egham, where Royal Holloway University resides. Um, and this was my house in my final year. We called it Clive's house. Um, <laughs> there was no... I feel like we thought we were so funny. Uh, no one called Clive lived there, but there was a door that didn't go into anything. I think it was like a cupboard door, but was like barely a cupboard and so we would tell people that Clive lived in that room and I can't believe you've not met Clive um I this sort of sums up that notion is the so I live with three boys and one other woman and and they were all comedians they all did improv and they, they all still work in that area apart from actually the woman is now a prop maker um but what the reason that this sort of stands out to me obviously like great we were all creative fun people but I think there was like a a, there's a particular freedom I think when you're still studying and especially with this this was before I decided to be a designer properly and go and do formal training that you know was really vocational this was my last year of being able to just experiment and be mad and at one point we were making a show a load of us that were in the house together 
um, had no budget. Had like we had like fifty quid between us, and we wanted loads of giant puppets. So we we just raided skips and kept it all in that flat. And so there was an entire conservatory just filled with junk, and none of us had any practical skills. Like, but somehow like one of us had gotten a drill. So we were like, well, somehow we'll stick these bottles together. And and we did. And we made some really fun, fun pieces of theatre. And was um, that in the house? We, no, we'd actually go to the drama department was just down the road. So we'd perform there. But I think, so Paul, who is playing the guitar in the photo, would film sort of short films in the house. Like it was just constantly bubbling with creativity and curiosity. And like, what a magical time. And I think when you were, I said it earlier to you, didn't I? But that when you when you're in it you don't realize how special that is yeah so then when you when you look back you're like that's that's a rare kind of time to be living in and the freedom of being a student an undergrad student with a student loan able to sit on a roof mm. it looks like someone had maybe just told a joke because you're laughing but you're also holding a camera so did you <laughs> you did you take photos Photos, I did yeah I did I still do um not well I'm not a brilliant photographer but I do love capturing symmetry I suppose I think it's all part of it isn't it visual a visual brain likes to collect images (laughs) and collect objects and objects because this delightful object um which is a wooden a wooden box that says Bethlehem yeah. on the top and it's got camels around the outside <laughs> and when we open it up it's a concertinaed set of drawers with little grooves in mm. um, tell us about this <laughs> object so on one of our jaunts around town our merry men wandering around the local charity shops of Egham. Um, I can't remember who spotted it, but this box was spotted as just this great weird thing, and so we bought it. Probably, I wonder if the price is still on it. I feel like it. No, it's not. That's sad. I didn't How tell much do you think it was? I think it was probably £1.50. It was something it, like, yes, it's a music box as well. Oh, wow. So, But we didn't know anything about what this was. Hang on, does it still work? That's creepy, isn't it? Um, So we bought it, got it home. (laughs) It's a music box, but it, like you say, it opens up in concertina drawers. They are for camel cigarettes. Okay. I don't know how to get it to stop. I don't know. I don't know that it will. This might have to play us out. This is going to play us out. We're going to have a theme tune. This is our soundtrack. Dumb more podcasts. Yeah. The Dumb Design soundtrack. So it was a, did you say a cigarette holder? So it's a cigarette, it's a cigarette box, yeah. So you can store, I did store, one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight. What's, what's nine times four? Eighteen. <laughs> we're, we're both getting our calculators out. <laughs> Can't do that. I don't know if I got to the nine times table. Oh, 36. Well done. I wouldn't have even guessed that. 36. Um, yeah, 36 cigarettes would sit inside this box. But the reason I think it's so brilliant is... We just didn't know what it was, but we'd, we'd buy it anyway for £1.50 or less. Um, and it just feels like it's curious, isn't it? It's like a beautiful, curious object. It's very curious. Filled, of little, filled with little surprises. And I had no idea it was a music box. Yeah. And why did you hang on to it when you left the house? Because it's amazing. <laughs> because I think it might be the coolest thing I'll ever own. Um, and it just reminds me of the spirit of, of that house so much. 
I think. Um, it just feels like such a silly, useless thing, but also just brilliant and, yeah. I'm not being very articulate about it. I really love that box. No, I love it as well. I'm going to put it back on the table because I moved it away because it was quite loud, but now it's now it's stopped. Um, and it also looks like you could store, I don't know, like tiny marbles or something in it. Yeah, that's that would be better than cigarettes. Um, or I wonder what the borrowers would turn it into. The borrowers... <laughs> the borrowers would... They'd live in that bunk bed, wouldn't they? <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Yes, I mean, that would be like a hostel yeah. for borrowers. Depends how big that. There's so much debate on how big a borrower is. Yeah, there? talk us through that. How big so, the borrowers? I so I've just done a production of the borrowers, <laughs> and B. Roberts, our brilliant writer, described our, our Arietti as the size of a packet of polos. That's quite a tall borrower. That is quite tall. I've like, got a packet of polos in my yeah. Um, I, that's nearly. I I think more traditionally they're like little little finger sized, so they're like a P would be a big meal for them. Maybe yeah. they're like one's twenty five. Maybe that's <laughs> maybe it's designer British here to design scale. <laughs> but in our irreverent, mad version of the borrowers in a very low grid theatre space, the, there was no official scale. <laughs> so you'd be like at one moment it was really clear that I'm trying to think of some of the props. Like like they'd they'd sleep inside a sardine tin, but then at the next moment like a walker's packet of crisps would be exactly the same size as that sardine. So any any like intelligent child watching that, picking it apart, which I think there will be children that will do it, will be like, Well, that's not to scale, is it? Doesn't know how big it wants to be. But the point is we had a walker's crisp packet that they could walk around in. So that is wonderful. I love that. Um, and Rosie, it's been so fun talking to you. Um, and something that I've asked, something that I've asked all of the designers that we've come and, sp- and spoken with uh, for the Doma podcast is, what advice would you give your younger self? Mm, I think don't. I think probably everyone says something like this. Don't worry so much. Don't worry. Like I think we spend a lot of time, like we said earlier, about worrying about not giving the idea, worrying about the instinct being wrong, and it's sort of like try and brush that off as ever, however hard that is, um, because sometimes that worry can become detrimental to you enjoying it. And ultimately, we're putting people in costumes and sending them on stage, <laughs> and that's really fun and mad. And I think like give yourself time to enjoy that that creativity and and that privilege that we have to be making the work that we're making so try and brush off the worry I wish I could listen to that advice I worry all the time but (laughs) that would be my advice yeah and what is it you hope that your work does for audiences so mm, this is something I always I'm always thinking about like so, like just generally the idea of like why are we even doing theatre is is a big question it's like always in my head um and I think I always want us to to be offering something totally live, like that that really requires the audience. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be immersive necessarily, but that there's an awareness of an audience and a performer and a set that is a set. It's not real. I've not ever. I mean, I think I've done, and actually, like, I think that you can create some real beauty with like pure naturalism. But it's just not what I'm trying to do. I've done like one naturalistic design. And even that ended up having to have an intervention in it that immediately was like, we're in the theatre. I've lied to you this whole time. Um, so, like, really always, I always want there to be that conversation of, of liveness. 
sometimes I achieve it and sometimes I don't. <laughs> but it's something, yeah, like I'm really inspired by sort of all the artists and directors out there at the moment that are experimenting with the, the form, like the question of what this form is and the fact that we're all sitting in a room together doing something. So yeah, meta, I like meta theatre. <laughs> Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Donmar on Design podcast series. Visit donmarwarehouse.com to find more podcasts with our world-class theatre makers.